Friends, if you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to take them and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 5 to 9, right in the middle of the chapter there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. And I'll ask you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus, beginning in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help now that we would be able to understand with hearts of faith the things that you have revealed in your word concerning who you are, concerning the Lord Jesus, concerning his church, and concerning our life therein. Lord, we pray for illumination from the Holy Spirit. We pray that the Word of God that never returns void would do its work in our hearts today. Pray, God, that You would keep me from error. We pray that You would grant our church discernment, that they would hold fast to the things that are true. And so be built up, Father, in the faith. And we pray these things confident in Jesus' name. Amen. After 10 years, today is my last sermon at Midtown Baptist Church. A decade ago, we set out to plant a God-centered church. That was arguably our number one aim, to be God-centered. So, for my final sermon, I want to put your focus where I pray it has been every Lord's Day for the last 10 years, and that is on God. When you leave today, I pray that you will leave full of confidence in who God is and in how He works in the life of His church. Our text today is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In some ways, it is a passage that is far removed from the life of Midtown Baptist Church. Paul is addressing a division in the Corinthian church as factions have developed around two different teachers, Paul and Apollos. The two teachers didn't create those factions, but sides have developed nonetheless. If you read the start of chapter 3, it even seems like the two sides have slogans for their preferred teacher. Thankfully, that situation sounds nothing like Midtown Baptist. There are no factions here, praise God. There are no slogans boasting in one person over another. We should be thankful for that. And in that sense, this passage seems very far removed from us. No factions here. 
But at the same time, this passage is quite appropriate for our church. We are on the verge of a transition from one chapter of the church's life to the next. There's no denying that. One regular voice from the pulpit will give way to another voice. And so it's important that we keep our focus where it ought to be, on God. It's important that we remember to whom the church belongs, to God. And it's important that we remember upon what our church rests, not our work, but God's. All of those reminders are present in this passage, and so even if the situation is not exactly the same, and it's not, praise the Lord, even if the situation is not exactly the same, the emphasis is still needed. This is a passage that calls us to see the church, our church, and her ministry with a God-centered perspective. To put it even more plainly, and I'm going to try to be as plain as I can, Paul reminds us in these verses that in the scope of a church's ministry, all that matters is God. All that matters is God. Whether you plant or whether you water, your role is the same. And that role is nothing compared to God. He is the one at work in all of the planting. He is the one at work in all of the watering. And therefore, His work, not ours, is what forms the foundation of our confidence, both for today and for the future. So I'm going to say this phrase over and over today, and you could really just write this one thing down on your bulletin, and that would be the whole sermon. In the life of the church, all that matters is God. All that matters is God. That's the point of today's passage. So, as I have said so often from this pulpit, my aim today is pretty simple. I want to draw your attention to three truths that are essential for maintaining a God-centered ministry. Three truths that are essential for maintaining a God-centered ministry. These truths build upon one another with the third being something of a climax that I hope encourages you in the days ahead. So let me give you the truths in advance in order to help you listen. First, we're going to think about God's servants. Second, we're going to think about God's sovereignty. You knew that had to be in there. And third, we're going to think about God's glory. God's servants, God's sovereignty, God's glory all with the aim of reaffirming our commitment to be a God-centered church, the very thing we set out to do. Let's begin then by thinking for a few minutes about God's servants. God's servants. As we noted a moment ago, the reason for this passage is the presence of factions in the Corinthian church. Sides have formed around Paul and Apollos. Paul, you know, as the apostle who planted the Corinthian church. But who is Apollos? Apparently, he was a very gifted brother known for his teaching of God's Word. His ministry ran through the Corinthian church at some point, And some of the Corinthians have wrongly concluded that Paul and Apollos were rivals. Perhaps some in the Corinthian church were even, even comparing the two men to see who was more fruitful. In short, it was a dangerous situation. Divisions were rising, threatening the unity of the church. And so, Paul begins this chapter where he must, with a correction. Instead of thinking of Paul and Apollos as rivals, 
the Corinthians ought to understand what the men truly are. Look again at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Friends, that's quite the contrast to how the Corinthians were acting, isn't it? They were lining up and forming sides as though Paul and Apollos were somehow captains of opposing teams, but Paul quickly dispels that notion. What is Paul? Nothing but a servant. What is Apollos, the mighty preacher? The same, only a servant. What's fascinating is that this is the same word that's used in Acts chapter 6 to describe the seven men whom the church selected to distribute food to the widows in the early church. Do you remember that scene, Acts chapter 6? Peter said it was not right for the apostles to be sidetracked from the ministry of the Word by waiting on tables. So the church appointed seven servants. It's the same word here. And that makes Paul's point. So to use a modern day image, Paul and, Apostle, uh, Paul and Apollos are simply busboys in the household of God. What's their job? Pick up the dishes. They're just servants. And so from the start, we see one of Paul's essential elements to remaining a God-centered church. When it comes to ministers and teachers in the church, our first attitude ought to be humility. Every teacher at the end of the day is only a servant. Humility is essential. In fact, humility is so essential for a God-centered church, Paul hammers it over and over in this short paragraph. Listen to the consistency of this one theme. Think about the humility of role. Look again at what Paul says about his role in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Friends, sometimes in the Bible, a preposition makes all of the difference in the world. And this is one of those examples. Paul does not say servants in whom you believed. The Corinthians did not place their faith in Paul. They did not join Paul's team. No, Paul is a servant through whom they believed. The preposition makes all the difference. Both Paul and Apollos were conduits for God's work in the Corinthians. Through Paul's ministry, the Corinthians believed in Christ. Don't get the prepositions mixed up. Through Paul, they believed in Christ. Fundamentally then, this is gospel ministry. It is to be a servant through whom God works. You should also note the humility of status that accompanies Paul's ministry. This is such a striking point in Paul's understanding of himself. Look again at verse 7, where the apostle could not be clearer. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. What is Paul's status in the Corinthian church? Answer, nothing. His status is nothing. I know that sounds stark, but that's Paul's own understanding of himself. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. If the Corinthians spend all of their time debating Paul versus Apollos, then they will miss the point. In the church of the Lord Jesus, all that matters is God. 
In fact, did you notice how the proper names slowly fade out of this paragraph as the verses unfold? The Corinthians were making slogans built around Paul's name and Apollos' name, but through this paragraph, the names just fade. We started in verse 5 with Paul and Apollos, but by verse 7, the names are gone. It's just the one who plants and the one who waters. And then he says it again in verse 8. The names just go away. What's the point? It's just this. All that matters is God. The one who plants and the one who waters are the same. They're just servants. Fulfilling the role that God intends for His church. Again, this is essential for being a God-centered church, brothers and sisters. At the end of the day, at the end of a ministry, what draws our attention? God does. God does. The way we think about ourselves ought to be marked by humility, and the way we think about God's church ought to be marked by humility. Why? Because that's what ministry is. Servanthood. Servants through whom God does His work. Now you might be thinking to yourself at this point, if this is the nature of ministry, why would anyone want to do this? Why would I sacrificially commit my life and my family's life to serving the church when in the end not even my name shows up in the record book? Why would anyone want to live this way? Those are excellent questions. I would even say that those are the questions you absolutely must answer if you want to devote your life to the church, which I hope each of you will continue to do. Those are excellent questions. Here's my answer from the Bible. Why would anyone live this way? Look at the first phrase, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. Friends, that's a staggering statement from the Apostle Paul. That's one of those clauses in the Bible that you read past because you think you understand it, and then you come back and you think about it a little bit more, and you say, man, I don't understand that at all. That's amazing. It's a staggering statement from Paul. At the end of the day, everything belongs to God. All that matters is God. And yet, at the same time, what does God do? He includes servants like us in the work that He is doing in the church and in the world. He even works through us and in us to advance His purposes. This is why we ought to live with that humble mindset. This is why we ought to think of ourselves first and foremost as servants. Because to be a fellow worker with God far outweighs any status or any prominence this world can offer. To be God's fellow worker is a privilege beyond compare. I don't know what lies ahead for you, brothers and sisters, but I do know this. To serve God in the life of His church is a privilege that the world cannot compare to. Yes, it means doing things that you don't like doing. Yes, it means servanthood. Yes, it requires you to go without some things that your friends at other churches might have. Yes, it requires you to live with the mindset of all that matters is God. All of those things are true. But in the end, even when your name fades in two verses, it's worth it. It's worth it. To be God's fellow worker far outweighs any status or any prominence 
that the world can offer. So I just want to encourage you. I want you to reaffirm this morning your commitment to be a God-centered Christian who serves in a God-centered church. I want you to reaffirm that commitment, and you do that by thinking of yourself first and foremost as God's servant and nothing else. The second truth for maintaining a God-centered church is found all through the passage, and it has to do with God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. In a way, this truth is the most important component of remaining a God-centered church. I'm going to give you my unfiltered opinion here for a second. So much of Christian theology in our day fails at precisely this point. We water down our doctrine of God, thinking that doing so will make Christianity more palatable to the world. So we reimagine God as less like Himself and more like us. And then we're shocked when our reimagined God is utterly demolished by a hostile and unbelieving world. What went wrong, we ask? Well, it began with your understanding of God. So mark it down. Mark it down. The church will stand against the world only insofar as her theology of God is bigger than the world. The church will only stand against the world insofar as her theology is bigger than the world. Friends, when you tell unbelievers what you believe about God, you should expect that they're going to be a tad bit shocked that you believe in an all-perfect God who controls and ordains all things. In order for the church to stand, our theology of God has to be bigger than the world. That's just another way of saying, that's just another way of saying that God's sovereignty is foundational for being a God-centered church and therefore a faithful church to the end. In our text, the sovereignty of God is Paul's antidote to factions in the Corinthian church. When we understand that all ministry rests upon God and that all ministry flows from God, then we will rightly think about ourselves and the church. It begins with God. Paul knows this, so in this short paragraph, it's like an exquisite tapestry. He weaves the sovereignty of God through almost every verse. Notice the threads of Paul's teaching. To begin with, Paul affirms God's sovereignty in the course of ministry. Look again at verse 5, the final phrase. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. This is a massively significant point. Paul is saying that the course of his ministry has less to do with his gifts and more to do with God's sovereign will. The Lord assigned the course of Paul's ministry, and the Lord assigned Apollos his course. Whatever happened after that was the result of God's sovereign will. If Paul's ministry appeared more visibly effective, then that was because of God, not Paul. If Apollos' course brought in more people, that was because of God, not Apollos. The Lord assigns the work to each of His servants. And so that means our course, whether it's straight or rough, is God's will for us. It's God's will for our church. To boast in Apollos or Paul is to miss the point. 
Paul didn't engineer the course of his ministry. God did. And therefore, the church's hope always remains in God, who orders everything according to the counsel of His will. God is sovereign over the course of ministry. Notice also that Paul affirms God's sovereignty in the growth of ministry. This is so clear, I almost don't need to point it out to you. It practically jumps off the page. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Greg, Greg told me one time that he thought every young preacher should have to preach his first message in a graveyard. You remember that? <laughs> that way the young preacher would know that he was dependent upon God to raise the dead and not his own gifts. I think every pastor should spend some time farming. The farmer knows where his harvest comes from. Sure, the farmer has to do his part, but the farmer has no control over the wind. He has no control over the rain. He can't regulate the amount of sunshine. He can plant and he can water, but the harvest is God's, not his. And friends, that's the same in the church. The church is like a field, and the growth of the church is like the harvest of crops. Who caused the harvest? Not Paul. He only planted. Not Apollos. He just watered the rows. Who caused the growth? God did. God did. Since He is the Lord of the harvest. When it comes to the growth of ministry, God is sovereign, not us. But then in verse 7, Paul reiterates the same point with a slightly different emphasis. Listen for the ongoing work of God in verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So did you catch the ongoing work of God in verse 7? In verse 6, God gave the growth, but in verse 7, God is presently working. He gives the growth right now. Paul says. Verse 6, He gave. Verse 7, He gives. Why is that significant? Because Paul is not present in the Corinthian church. Apollos has come and gone too. They're both gone. But who remains in the Corinthian church? God does. God remains. And what is God doing? Working right now. Because it's always God who works and not us. And that's precisely what the Corinthians need to remember. God gave the growth when Paul was there and God gives the growth when Paul is gone. Because it's God's job to give the growth, not ours. God's sovereign over the growth of ministry. One final piece to God's sovereignty. Verse 8, God is sovereign in the outcome of ministry too. Paul and Apollos are only servants. All that matters is God. And yet there's still a reason for, it, for each servant to be faithful. The God-centeredness of the church is no cause for laziness. Why not? Because God sees and He rewards. Look at verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. The more that I read Paul's letters, the more I realize he is nearly always thinking of the last day. 
He's almost always thinking about the final day of standing before Christ. And that's the case in verse 8. What drives Paul to be a servant? The promise of reward with Christ. What animates Paul to make much of God and not himself? The prospect of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. In other words, Paul is not focused on the earthly outcome of his ministry. Please hear me on this. Paul's not focused on the earthly outcome. He's not comparing himself to Apollos. He's not measuring his church plant against other congregations in the neighborhood in order to see how he ranks. No, Paul is focused on one thing. One thing. Standing before the Lord Jesus. That's it. And brothers and sisters, that's what keeps you going in the work that God has given you to do. Whether it's your ministry in your home, in your neighborhood, or in this church, the Lord Jesus sees your service. He knows your readiness to fulfill your calling. He sees your service and He stands ready to commend you on the final day when you stand before His throne. This is what will keep you going in the days ahead, brothers and sisters. By all means, by all means, pray and work and plan. Serve the Lord in the life of Midtown Baptist. Pray for fruit work for growth, plan with all wisdom, whatever God has given you to do, I want you to do it with all of your might. But at every step, at every step, at every, at every prayer, every act of service, every moment of planning, at every step, please come back to this truth. God is sovereign over the life of His church and over the course of His ministry, not you. He sets the course he gives the growth, and He will reward His servants at the outcome on the last day. Serve as hard as you can, but at the end, trust that God is sovereign and not you. Let's look at the final truth that helps us maintain a God-centered commitment as a church. We've thought about our identity as God's servants. We've reminded ourselves of God's sovereignty in the life of the church now let's end with God's glory. God's glory. Just to remind you, when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about two different but complementary realities. On the one hand, God's glory is His, is His essential nature. God's glory is His essential nature, the radiance of His perfection as God. So think about the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he's given a glimpse of the heavenly throne room. What does Isaiah see? Well, he sees the floor because God is there. And God's glory knocks him over, even just a glimpse of it. Or think about Moses on the mountaintop in Exodus 34. He asks to see God's face, God's glory. Do you remember what happened to Moses when he came down from the mountain? His face shone with the brightness of the glory of God, even though he had only seen God's back, not his front. So on the one hand, God's glory is his essential nature, the radiance of his beauty, of his perfections. But on the other hand, God's glory is also his fame or his renown. This is what we Reformational Christians mean when we say that we exist for the glory of God. That's our church's vision statement, by the way. We exist 
to glorify God. What we mean is that we live to make God known. We exist to put God on display, to spread the fame of His name all over the earth, beginning right here in central Arkansas. And one of the key ways that we do this is by proclaiming the centrality of God in all things, whether it is our families, our church, or our work. We ought to be quick to put the focus on God. God's glory is His fame, His renown. And it's that second sense of God's glory that I'm referring to here this morning. God's glory as His fame. You can see this emphasis in the text. Look again at verse 9. Paul has already described himself as God's fellow worker, but then Paul goes on to make a statement about the church. Verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers, here it is, you are God's field, God's building. This is the point of the entire paragraph, expressed in one brief, memorable sentence. What is the church? It is God's field, not Paul's. What is the church? It's God's building not Apollos's. All that matters is God. We've already thought about the church as God's field and God as the Lord of the harvest, so I want to think for a moment about the church as a building. This is a wonderfully encouraging image, I think. The church, according to Paul, is God's building. And that means God is the builder. Or, if you prefer, as I do, the architect. I love the image of God as an architect. I only know one architect and he's really good, so that's probably why I like the image of God as an architect. It recalls a skilled craftsman who lays his plans and anticipates problems and ensures that the building stands firm and lasts for generations. And that's how God works in the life of His church. He is the master architect. He has a plan. And he never cuts corners. He always builds exactly to his specifications. And most importantly, God, as the architect, never leaves the job undone. He never leaves it unfinished. There's a house that I drive by often over by the mall, and it's been unfinished for nearly the entire time I've lived in Midtown. It's just not finished. I don't know who owns it, but I don't think very highly of him. Who would leave his home undone? What builder starts but doesn't finish? Not God. Not God. He's the master architect. He's the perfect builder. When he starts a job, he finishes it. When he begins a good work, he carries it to completion without fail. That's who God is. And amazingly, brothers and sisters, amazingly, this should blow your mind. You are God's building. You are God's building. He is the one who laid the foundation of our church. He is the one who brought you here to be a member and to serve. His Word has shaped our life together over the years. His Gospel has comforted us when we were heartbroken and thrilled us in worship. His promises have steadied us in uncertain times. Whatever the season of building, whether we're laying the foundation, framing the walls, hanging the sheetrock, or putting the shingles on, whatever phase of building we're in, God is the architect and builder and He never leaves the job undone. You are God's building. And He'll finish it. 
Whatever the season, God has been the one laying the boards, hammering the nails, carrying out the work. Midtown Baptist Church is God's building. And so when you look around, when you look around at our life together, what should you see? You should see the glory of God shining clearly from the lives of those who serve Him and trust His sovereignty. And therefore, whatever comes, whatever comes, God will not fail to finish what He started. You are God's building. And God has so much good work left to do. How's that work going to go on? How's that work going to continue? How will you remain a God-centered church where the glory of God shines out brightly for everyone to see? Well, put all of the truths of the sermon together for just a minute. How's He going to do this? You embrace your calling to be God's servant. You serve Him by serving the church with humility and with confidence wherever the need arises. You embrace your calling to be God's servants. And you trust in God's sovereignty. He establishes the course of ministry, the growth of ministry, and the outcome. Serve Him, trust His sovereignty, and in the end, what results is God's glory. Revealed in God's building, the church. All that matters is God. All that matters is God. I've thought for a while about how to end this sermon. I started thinking about it a long time ago. I had a few ideas on how to end, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't ever decide which one was best. So I'm just going to include all of them. I want to end with a story, a song, and a scripture. The story is one of my favorites. It's from The Lord of the Rings. Forgive me if you're not a nerd like me. If you don't like Tolkien's world, you should. <laughs> At the end of the book, Gandalf is saying goodbye to his dear friends, and the old, wither, the old wizard says, I will not say, do not weep for not all tears are an evil. Some tears are right because they tell us that what we have shared is good and beautiful and true. Some tears remind us that we have known love. You could even say that some tears are a down payment on glory where all of the shadows of good things in this life give way to the reality of life and glory with God. So, I will not say do not weep, for not all tears are an evil. The song is a hymn entitled Soldiers of Christ in Truth Arrayed. The last stanza reads like this. We meet to part and part to meet when earthly labors are complete to join in yet more blessed employ in an eternal world of joy. Yes, we meet to part, but we part to meet. 
And I'm looking forward to that day, friends. So we're going to part for now. But, but, I've heard, I've heard that there is a feast coming one day. A feast given by a great king. And we will be there together. And maybe our chairs will even be close to one another's around the table. And that will be good. The scripture is perhaps the oldest blessing in the Bible from Numbers chapter 6. It's a blessing that speaks of God's face. But more importantly, it's a blessing that reminds us that all that matters is God. When the Israelites would part company, this is the blessing that they would say to one another, this very God-centered, God-focused, God-saturated, hopeful blessing. And so with eyes fixed on God, with eyes fixed on God, this is what I pray for you, my brothers and sisters. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that the ministry is Yours, not ours. We thank You that the church is Yours, not ours. We thank You that the Gospel is the good news that You are working even when we fail to work. We praise You, God. We ask that You would help us to be humble and to embrace our role as servants in the household of God. We pray, Father, that You would reaffirm our confidence in Your sovereignty, that not one single molecule moves apart from Your sovereign will. And we pray, God, that we would remember and rest upon the unshakable good news of Your glory, that You will certainly bring to pass all that You have promised, that there's much work left to do, and we can be hopeful in You. Father, we pray that You would knit our hearts together even as the miles come in between us, we pray that You would knit our hearts together and that we would remember, Father, that we are all laboring for the same goal, the same gospel, the same end. And that You would help us, God, to be hopeful in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.